Now, if you have not been joining us, if you're here for the first time, we welcome you. Now, uh, I have been on a series uh, on, um, in the book of Genesis of an individual who's named um, uh, Jacob. And someone said to me, I was speaking at seniors on Thursday, and someone said, I didn't even realize that you could have that many sermons on Jacob. Now, I don't know whether that was a compliment or not. I'm hoping, I'm taking it as a compliment. And uh, we are approaching um, some important things that happen in the life of Jacob. Jacob. Jacob? Who's Jacob? Jacob. And there's some important things for us uh, to understand. Now, when we last left, he had, uh, last, we had last finished in, in Genesis chapter 31. Jacob was running away from Laban. And Laban was in a country which is called Padam Aram. And that is in Iraq, for those of you who don't know, if you want to kind of have the geography lesson, that's where he is. And he has spent the last 20 years there. But things have, things have gotten bad between him and his uncle Laban. He takes his family and he begins to go back into uh, the promised land. The problem is, he is about to meet up with Esau, who has been stewing, pardon the pun, he has been stewing over the fact that his brother stole the birthright from him. And so he's up against a battle. So he finds himself between Iraq and a hard place. Okay, I know. I heard another pastor say it. I thought it might work. I guess it didn't. Have you ever been between a rock and a hard place? My thinking is that you have. I know for myself, I have. And it takes on many different forms. Perhaps you're a business owner. And as a business owner, many people don't know that you, you have to make decisions based on the forecast of what is going on and what is ahead. And, and sometimes those decisions are risk. And sometimes you take the risk and, and perhaps you take the risk at a time when the economy turns and, and the losses that you expected are even more. And you're kind of hoping that things turn and the forecast doesn't look good. And if you have a job, you just leave your job and go to another job. But if you own a business, then you lose everything. And so you're sitting here. And you're saying, oh, this is terrible. I could lose everything. And you begin to pray. Or you're here and you're a student, overwhelmed by a workload. And you have a whole bunch of things in terms of school. And it's more difficult than you thought. Not only that, you're having to work two jobs because you have to pay rent. And you're overwhelmed by it all. And the reason you're overwhelmed is because you're, you're putting 27 hours into a 24-hour day. And you're not too sure if you're going to be able to make it. And you feel that this is where God wants you to be. And in the height of this, your car breaks down. And eventually so do you. And you sit in a chair and you begin to call out to God. Perhaps you have a young family. And there's news of a baby coming. And the doctor says, oh, the baby is going to be autistic. And it's hard enough that you manage the two children that you have. And the doctor expresses that perhaps there are other issues as well. And when you're trying to ponder all of this, that the fact that there's going to be an imperfection somehow in your family, and, and you're wondering why God has allowed this to happen to you, you sit down and you start to pray. Maybe you're going through life easily. Everything is honky-dory. Everything is wonderful. And then all of a sudden you find out that your spouse has an addiction and the addiction is so great that they have lost their job. And it's a terrible thing because they pay 
most of the income in the house and you're not too sure what to do and you're upset about the fact that the situation and the finances are, are dire, but that is the least of the problems. How do you rebuild trust? What are you going to do? Is your family going to survive? So you find a part of your house where nobody's around and you begin to pray and call on God, a rock in a hard place. You have a nagging cough. At first, it's just discomfort. Then all of a sudden, it's happening all the time. There's a hacking that takes place, and you can't avoid it anymore. So what you do is you call the doctor. You go for tests, and the doctor calls right away and says, you've got to come in tomorrow. And you, all you can think about is the fact that you've got a new mortgage on your house, and you have two young children. So when everyone goes to bed, you kind of sit in a quiet place in your house, and you begin to call out to God. Your child has gotten involved with the wrong crowd. They were a wonderful person like six months ago, and then all of a sudden something happened. They made this friend who brought them to other friends, and they changed the way they look. And at a time where they used to be around all the time, all they do now is come home, go into the room, close the door. The school has, found, has called and said, we have found some disturbing notes. Why don't you come in the next day? And you're not too sure what to do. What has happened to this wonderful child of mine? Is there anything more important than our kids? And so what happens is you just take a place and you begin to cry out to God. There's a dark cloud that's come into your life and you can't seem to get away from it. It's like a, an unwelcome acquaintance. It's always there. You're not too sure where it came, but you're pretty sure it's never going to go. You begin to experience catastrophic thoughts, deep, dark thoughts that you thought you would never think in your life. And you can't understand why it is and you're sure that nobody else understands what you are going through and in a time where you just don't know what to do you begin to sit and call out to God perhaps the situation is that you have a troubled past or perhaps you have a secret and it threatens to revisit and you're afraid that people will know the real you and you'll be devastated by the rejection you'll be devastated by the shame and yet here you are living in this paranoia and it gets to a point where you just can't take it anymore and you begin to call out to God. Have you ever been between a rock and a hard place? My guess is yes, you probably have. And maybe you are going through one now. Maybe you're going through the most difficult situation in your life. And you know, this is what the life of Jacob shows. It shows this, that even if you're facing a crisis of your own making, God is on your side. If I've done nothing wrong, if I feel like I've been pure and something has happened, that's hard enough. But what, excuse me, what happens in those times where I begin to pray, and as I'm praying, all of a sudden I begin to say, the reason that I'm in this position is because of my stupidity, by my selfishness, by my sin. And that's the cloud that Jacob was under. This is what he was thinking. And then it, it, it makes us consider something which is extremely important. It's this aspect of grace. When we pray to God and, and we're at our wit's end, is God a God that says this, listen, you made your bed, sleep in it. Or does God sit there saying, I'm going to teach you a lesson. If he does, if that's the God that we serve, folks, we are all in trouble. God is not like that. The one thing that we have to fall back on is this thing which we call grace, that he is a God of undeserved favor. And Jacob doesn't understand this, but God won't treat him as his deeds deserve, but will treat him as he's a favored son. And this is a crucial thing. 
when engaging in crisis prayer, because that's what I want to talk about, crisis prayer. When you're between a rock and a hard place, when your life is in crisis, when you have no idea how the ending of the story is going to be, nothing you can do is so important to the outcome as praying well. How do you pray when your world is falling apart? That's the question I want to answer this morning if I could. And there's some important things to see in Genesis chapter 32. Now, if you have Bibles and if you have your Bible apps, turn with me um, to Genesis chapter 32. Now, um, a huge point in Jacob's life is where he wrestles with God. And this is not at that time, but it is just before that time. This is the prayer. And this this prayer that he prays is known by many scholars, by many commentators, as the greatest prayer in the book of Genesis, which says quite a bit. Some pretty key characters in the book of Genesis. I'm going to read the first, I think, 13 verses of Genesis chapter 32. Now, when I left, basically what I said was Laban was chasing after Jacob, and they made a covenant. It wasn't an I love you and you love me covenant. It was one of those things, stay away, here's the border. Don't ever come back. That's how Laban felt about him. So he takes off. He had run from Esau to get to Laban. Now he's running from Esau back to the promised land. And who is he confronting? Esau. He has nowhere to run. And what happens is he prays this prayer, which is important for us to understand. So let me, let me start reading. So so Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he named, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sire, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dealt with Laban and and stayed There until now I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male or female servants. I have sent them, I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Verse 6 says, then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we we came to your brother Esau and he is also coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, the other will be left to escape. And Jacob said, oh God, my father. This is where the prayer starts in verse 9. It says, oh God, my father of Abraham and God of my father Isaac and the Lord who said to me, return to your country, to your family, and I will deal with you. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies of all the truth that you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother uh, with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered uh, for multitude. So he lodged there the same night, took and came his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. Now the next 11 verses, take a look at the word of God and say, that's just kind of funny. 
what he does is he kind of takes a whole bunch of livestock as gifts. I think it was um, 530 goats, lambs, cows, everything. And he sends them ahead, kind of in different, different stages. And, and the idea is, well, he's going to be so overwhelmed by the wonderfulness of the gift that he's going to forget that I ripped him off 20 years ago. And then he goes on, and as I read, he said, tell Lord Esau. He has never, ever called him Lord Esau until now. What's with all the flowery, buttery language? Well, he learns that from Laban, his uncle, who had done that all the time. And so what he does is he divides things up, and he sends them ahead, one family, second family, and then he's the very last one. He throws everything in front of him. Maybe the thought is this. Maybe after they have slaughtered all of my family and kids, they might be too tired to kill me. I'm not too sure. But you're kind of left with this. Why is he doing what he did? And I'll just tell you this, that his plan didn't work, but his prayer did. And there's some key things that we can learn from this prayer and some conditions that were taking place during this prayer that are for you and for me today. And if you are here, and you're going in through one of those times where you're not too sure to run. I believe that God is saying something for you um, today. Or it will be a hand grenade sermon for when that time does come. Amen? Here's how we need to pray. When we're in crisis, we need to pray a number of ways. We need to pray with heavenly confidence. Now, one thing you'll notice when you look at this passage of Scripture, he comes into the promised land and there are angels there. And he calls the place Hananeum, which basically means two hosts, two camps. And basically what he was saying, there's the camp that we're in, but it is also the camp of God. Now let me remind you that when he left the promised land, he had a vision of angels. And when he comes back into the promised land, he has the acknowledgement that there are angels around. What's the significance of this? I think that there's something that is there. Like, a lot of times, we're not too sure about this whole angel thing, are we? You know, it, scriptures kind of tell us that they're around, but since we don't see them, we don't understand them very well, we, fact, we don't really factor them into our lives, but I believe that as they encamped around Jacob, they also encamp around us. Of all the times that, men, Bibles are, uh, that angels are mentioned in the Bible, it's in 34 books. It is in 17 books of the Old Testament, 17 books in the New Testament. Angels are referred to between 273 or 285 times. I don't know how they didn't kind of get together and figure it is the one number. I guess there's some kind of times where it's debatable. Well, that's a lot of times, don't you think? And then you think of, of Psalm chapter 34, verse 7. It says, the angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And what about 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16, where, where the servant of Elisha was overwhelmed by all these people around. He says, hey, look again. Those who are for us are more than those who are against us. It says that in scriptures. And what about Psalm 91? That's the one we quote all the time. You know, it talks about that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. There is something there. It leads me to think that the Holy Spirit, including this in the scriptures, absolutely means something for us today. And the first step to crisis prayer is this, that realizing that you are not alone. That as you go through the most difficult times in your life, 
there is another camp, even though you may not see it. To pray with heavenly confidence. The next thing that we realize is that we need to pray hysterically. No, not like that. But to realize something important. That fear is something which God had. If you allow fear to motivate you, it is good. You need to take care of the fear. Or the fear will take care of you. And some of the greatest times that you will have in prayer will be when you leverage your despondency. When a flick, a, a switch flicks on, you all of a sudden get serious about minding to things that God wants you to do. That you utilize desperation as a means to approach the throne room of God. That you let the, the panic that things could actually be defeat be the fuel that, uses, that you use to cry out to God. Lee Eklop says it this way. When your future is frightening, nothing you do matters much than praying well. Fear is often the front door of the school of prayer. It's the alarm clock that goes off, or it's the alarm clock that should go off. We face troubles today, continually looking at the news about what's happening in the Ukraine. And if it should be anything to us, it should be at least an alarm clock to believers across the world to pray for peace. To pray for God to intervene. Because we all know how this could expand into something absolutely greater. And I can't even comprehend living in a country which is war-torn. And to face the thought that you could die at any point. We need to pray for the Ukraine. As a congregation, we need to pray for Ukraine. We need to pray for peace in our world because it is serious. God, move on the people of Ukraine. God, be with this situation, the war with Russia, everything that's going on. Father, you need to intervene. I don't know everything that's going on, but God, you need to intervene. In Jesus' name. You take a look in the book of Acts chapter 12, and it says that the, that the church prayed with all of their gumption that they possibly could. And you ask yourself, why was that? Well, because James died. They prayed for Peter to be released. But the reason they were praying as hard for Peter is because they realized that when they didn't, James died. There comes a time where you need to utilize the fear that you have to see holding on to the joke forever because it was never, ever the right time. And now I finally have the right time to tell you my joke. There's a story of three pastors, and they're talking about, I pray, I sit on my chair, I fold my hands, and I point my two thumbs up to heaven. I find that God really responds when I pray that way. And the other one says, well, no, no, no. He says, when you pray, you need to really humble yourself. So I get down on my knees and I lift my hands to heaven and cry out to him. And it's the best posture to pray. The third one says, well, you know what? I think it's even more serious than that. You need to lie down on the ground with your arms out open, calling out to God. That's the best posture in prayer. And, and they begin to debate all this. And there's a telephone repairman kind of listening in the background. He says, you know, folks, fellas, I, I know that I don't know near as much as you. But I have found that the time where I prayed the most effectively was when I was dangling from a telephone pole 30 feet in the air with my foot caught between two live wires. It's true. Brings about a point. There's something about 
the seriousness of the moment that allows us to touch God in a way like never before. Pray hysterically. Pray historically. You notice the way Jacob starts the prayer? Hey, God of my grandfather, Abraham. God of my father, Isaac. You have done so many things in their lives before, and so I'm coming to you based on the fact that I have seen you move in the past. One of the most important things we can do is remind God of the past, because when we are reminding God of the past, what we're actually doing is reminding ourselves of the past. What he has promised, what he has done, what he has done for others in the past, and that will be the footing to put you in the right direction, to realize that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that his power and his presence and, and, and his past mighty acts are things that we can lean on and look to and, and glean on to realize that we are praying to a God who cares. You take a look in the New Testament when the church begins to pray in Acts chapter 4, it says this, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's important to pray historically because it puts you in a place where you understand who you are praying to. A creative, powerful God, a covenant-keeping God, a historically proven God who has been with you before. And if he was with you before, he will be with you again. Amen? To pray historically. It also says that we need to pray humbly. All of a sudden in verse 10, Jacob says this. God, I'm nothing. This is the first time you hear Jacob to begin to speak in this language. In prayer, I think we make two mistakes. First of all, we fail to understand who God is. Secondly, we fail to understand who we are. That there's something about letting it all on the table before God. Because in Christ's prayer, you can't just talk a humble game comes that time where it says in Psalm chapter 51, I think it's in verse 6, where he says, what you want, God, more than bulls and, and all these other sacrifices is a broken and a contrite heart. Sorry, Psalm chapter 5, 51, verse 17. It says God resists the proud. He gives, he gives grace to the humble. Pray humbly. Pray in humility. Pray honestly. Surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. God, here is the truth. My brother is after me, and I am absolutely terrified that he's going to kill me. He's going to kill my wife. He's going to kill my kids. Sometimes the difference between praying with humility and praying with honesty is very little. There's times when we get to the point of honesty where we actually get to the bottom of things. That Finally, you're at a point where you're honest with God. And there are people who take a look at a prayer like this and say, hey, that's just negative. We need to be positively confessing the truth. And I understand the, the point that people make when they say that. But here's, here's what I have come to believe. That it's better to pray negatively and to be honest than to pray positively and lie. That the impossible, it is absolutely too impossible to pour out your heart without actually being completely and then you let faith take you the opposite direction. But there's something about praying honest prayers. Getting rid of all the trash. And getting to the point at hand. 
And there's one more. To pray his will and to pray his promises. As you look at that prayer, you will see a shift in verse 12. He's kind of praying about himself. He's praying about everything that is taking place in his life. He's praying and he's asking God. But in verse 12, he shifts. In verse 12, he basically begins to say this. Well, God, I just want to make sure that your promise is fulfilled. That you make the descendants as the sea and the sand, just like you promised to my dad and my grandfather, and you're promising to me, I am going to hold on to the promise that you have. Jesus does the same thing. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, Thy kingdom come, let your will be done. And there's something about, in the times when we are in crisis, that we take a look at the word of God and look at the promises that he gives us and we pour them and we pound him, pound them deep into our prayers. There's a reason that God gives us a word of God. There's a reason that God sends us his promises. So the person who has the business says, God, I know that you have been with me right from the beginning. And I have seen in times in the past where you have moved. But I'm afraid because I have made some decisions and I want to see my business go ahead because I want you to be glorified. And I am absolutely nothing without that. And I just want to be honest before you. And you say that you will never ever leave me or forsake me. So I hang on to that promise, God. That you're always there. That you're a friend that sticks closer to a brother. God, I, I am so overwhelmed by the studies that I'm going through. But there are times I know when I've looked at my parents and you have in, in past seen you move and this is why I'm here and I believe God that you're here but I can't do this on my own. I realize that there's nothing that I can do but you will be with me even in the shadow of death you are with me. Your rod, your staff, you protect me so help me. God I'm so depressed I don't know what's going on but there were people in scripture before who were discouraged. There is Elijah who was discouraged, and God, you brought him out. Your word says you brought us out of the miry clay. And so, God, I can't overwhelm, get, uh, can't, see, can't take away from being overwhelmed by this discouragement that's in my life. And so, God, I just honestly giving it to you, realizing that you are my peace, realizing that you've torn down every wall. You see how it goes? You see the process? God cares for you. And Jacob, in the most difficult time of his life, prays a prayer that thousands of years later still applies for us today. There was a, a story that came out in the news about 10 years ago. And it was of a lady who is in mid-flight with her husband. And they were in Wisconsin. I think that they were landing in a place which was called Sturgeon Bay, or at least getting close. And then all of a sudden, her husband has a heart attack. Dies in the plane. I don't know, 15, 20,000 feet in the air. Your husband dies. And you're there alone in the plane. So she calls 911. And 911 dispatches her to, the, to the, um, the air traffic controller. And they say, okay, so 
what are we going to do? <laughs> I don't know what to do. So she takes the, the thing. She, she's flown with her, her husband before a number of times, and, and uh, her name was Helen, Helen Collins. And, and so what happens is she just desperately takes a hold of this, begins to talk to them, and they say, hold on, we're going to get a pilot. That pilot's going to fly beside you, and we're going to tell you exactly what to do. And all of a sudden, the left engine begins to sputter and go out. And they ask, how much fuel do you have? She says, not a whole lot. But she's too close to the airport already, so she has to circle around. And they do a practice run on how to do it. I don't know, maybe they did two practice runs on how to do it. And finally, as they're telling her to get the, fly, the flaps down and, and slowly go down and, and focus on this, she lands. Not a perfect three-point landing, but she lands. And she survives. Incredible story. And the fact that she was 80 years old adds to it as well. I don't think any of us, like, that, that's kind of your worst nightmare sort of thing, don't you think? I have never, ever faced a situation where I was in a plane not knowing how to land it thousands of feet in the air. But there certainly has been times where I have been unsure what to do. There have been times where this world has overwhelmed me so much and I was in such a state of despondency that I kind of felt like that. I felt like I was going to crash. I felt like that was going to be the end. And in those times, there had to be someone who talked me down. And the thing is, the things that I had held on to before to get me in that spot had all died. There comes a time when you're in those spots that there has to be something, someone who can somehow get you down. Is that not true? And you might be here. And everything is going well for you. Remember that. But I'm thinking that there might be two or three who are here this morning. And you're saying, that's me. That's my life. That's what I'm going through right now. Is it possible to pray for you? Can we just bow our heads? Can we just kind of take a time where we're looking around? And I believe that God has put this message together for you. Maybe you're, you're in line, uh, online and, and God is speaking to you. I'm not too sure. If you're here and um, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and saying, that's me, I'm not going to ask you to come to the front unless you want to come to the front. But if that's you, I just want to, can you, can you just raise your hand real quick? Up, down. Thanks, thanks. There's a number of hands here. You're not alone. You're not alone. First of all, God, I pray for every single person here who does not know Jesus. You're here and you don't know God you're talking about all this stuff and, and I kind of understand because I kind of figured this God thing out but I really don't know him if there are anyone here who doesn't know you and you are convicted in them God I pray that they will find you today I pray that they will find you today by praying a prayer saying God I'm a sinner and I need you to come and forgive my sins and come into my life and be my Lord and my Savior and I just pray that you will do that work God I don't want to take for granted that everybody here knows Jesus. But Lord, I know that there are a number of people who 
just going through such a deep, dark time, not knowing what to do. And they're calling on the pilot of their soul to begin to fly them down, to give them an answer. And Lord, when, when, when you come to answer Jacob, it certainly isn't the way that he expected, and that's the way it happens many times. God, for now, right this time, God, I just pray for those people who just signified by raising their hands that, that, God, you want to do something special, that you want to do something deep, that you want to bring them back home. And I pray for the presence of God. I pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. I pray for the touch of a loving God on people who are just suffering, going through crisis situations. They're in a place where they don't know where to run. Let us run to you. We just give you thanks and praise because Jacob ran to you. It's the only place he could run was back to you. I pray, God, that you will move. Do something deep in the spirit of your people, Lord. As we come out of COVID, do something deep in your people, oh God. Allow the presence of the Holy Spirit begin to prepare us for what's ahead. May you be lifted up. May you be glorified, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Pastor Glenn's going to end with a song. I am again going to be opening up these altars. Any person who wants to pray for anything, you are welcome to come up. Allow the presence of God to move in this time. We'll pray for you if you need it. If not, we'll just let you uh, go and, and do business with God alone. But I just want to make sure that these altars are open so that God can move. Pastor Glenn. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Let's continue the conversation online. Visit us at BethelBrandon.ca or follow us on Facebook. Thank you.